All right. Good evening. Well, y'all are in good voice tonight. That's good. We need to stay that way. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 8. While you're doing that, let me make a couple of quick announcements. Uh, We want to remind you of the uh, Vacation Bible School coming up on July the 8th through the 12th. And they may still need some help, so if you haven't signed up to help, you need to do that. There's still a sign-up sheet out in the, in the foyer. Uh, and if you have any questions in helping in a, in a greater way, of course, you do need to uh, call the office and we'll direct you in the right, uh, in the right direction to the people to talk to for that. And then I want to remind you of the, um, the trip to Israel in um, uh, March of 2014. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a 12-day trip uh, that's including all the travel and all the time in the land of Israel. But um, we've, we've tried to keep it at a, a very reasonable rate. Nowadays, if you look at other churches or church groups that are going to Israel today, they're paying from $4,000 on up. But we've really tried hard to keep it under $4,000, and, and uh, we think that we have. <laughs> so... We have a uh, price of, um, uh, I'm trying to find it here, I believe it's 37.95 still, and that's what it was uh, last time we went, so we, we work, yes, 37.95 from El Paso, so we don't have to go some other place to start our travels, we start right here. <clears throat> anyway, these are the forms, they're in the office, so when you have an opportunity, go by there. If you're still interested, we want you to be interested and get interested real quick because we need to start signing people up and letting uh, Inspire Travel know how many people are going. Uh, we um, will also be sharing the trip with Calvary Chapel of Las Cruces and Pastor Bob and, and, uh, and, and others. So we're hoping that uh, that will become a, a great, great trip. Again, I think I mentioned to you before, uh, a lot of times that we're asked questions, well, is it safe over there? And I've told you this, and I honestly honestly mean it. I sometimes feel more safe in Israel than I do here. So, yeah, it's safe over there. Uh, We've had church groups over there. We've had some Calvary chapels even there. uh, The last time we went, which was in November, there had been some (coughs) things happening uh, over the border. But uh, we never get to see those things. They're very, they they protect all of the the groups well that go over there. So uh, security is their number one. Uh, priority for us and so it is a, a wonderful trip our guide Yuval Shaked who has been with us now for I think three visits or at least two but three I think uh, in any event he's going to be our guide again and so we're excited Yuval is a uh, is a messianic believer in other words he's a Jewish believer in Christ and so uh, it's a wonderful to have him as our as our guide all right well, anyway anyway Revelation chapter 8 uh the more we get into the book of Revelation and the more we look at the newspaper or we look at the news on TV or whatever, uh, I think we, we need to start realizing how much these things are going hand in hand in our daily life, looking at the things that are happening, for example, overseas, the things that are happening in Israel, of course, in the Middle East especially. But let me also 
emphasize to you the things that are happening in our own nation as well. Because there's all kinds of turmoil that, have, that are taking place within our own country today. What used to be called a Christian nation can no longer be called a Christian nation per se. Especially uh, if uh, you leave that up to the leadership of our administration uh, and, and many people in our own government today. There, there's this tremendous push by uh, the military and, and people who have come to influence the military. I've been reading a, a series of articles on what they are doing to stifle uh, military chaplains from preaching Christ. Well, they're Christian chaplains. They should be allowed to preach Jesus Christ. But they don't give any problems whatsoever to the Muslim chaplains who preach Allah. So uh, you see what's happening? It's happening all around us, and we shouldn't put our heads in the sand. What happened today with the uh, uh, Defense of Marriage Act and the Proposition 8 uh, that deals with... Uh, the banning of same-sex marriages. They're leaving it up, of course, to the states. In a lot of ways, that's the way it's supposed to be. But uh, with all of the, 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 the drive and the push uh, by so many lobbyists, and uh, it, it's, it's incredible to see what's happening. And it's just happening right under our noses. And we say, well, what can we do about it? Well, we're doing what we need to do. We're doing what we need to do. We need to be standing strong upon God's Word. We need to first and foremost trust God's Word. We need to trust Jesus Christ. We need to trust the work of the cross. And we need to trust the work of the blood of Jesus Christ to cleanse from all sin. We need to believe that His, His, His work continues today until the day He comes for His church. And even beyond, of course, as we've been studying in the last couple of chapters during the time of the tribulation period, there are going to be people that are going to come to know Jesus Christ. They're going to come to realize that everything that was said by the believer, the true believer in Jesus Christ and the Word of God about Jesus and about salvation is all true. And they'll be willing to give their lives for it. So, yeah, all of these things, as I said earlier, they could give us great cause for concern. And we should be concerned. We should be aware of what's going on. But more than anything, we should be giving God all the glory, honor, and praise for, keep, for giving us life and giving us this grand opportunity to serve Him until the day of Christ. To serve Him until the day that Jesus comes. And I've said this and I've heard it many times, but we live in the most exciting times that you could ever live in. Because we're seeing, we've seen the rebirth of Israel. We are seeing the... the really the rebirth of, 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 of the church, in essence. But we're also seeing what the Bible says about the apostasy in the last days. And while we could get, you know, quote-unquote negative about things like that, that's, that's not for us to worry about. Our God is sovereign, and our God is in control. We have the documents that tell us what's going to happen already. And if the things that have been happening that were predicted thousands of years ago have happened and are happening still, then we can say this is a reliable document. We need to stay in it and know what's coming next. Are you with me? All right. Okay. I'm not lecturing you. I'm just encouraging you. I want you to know that Jesus Christ is coming. And I'm telling you this because he said so. He says, I'm coming again. 
When I come, I'm going to gather you, my church. I'm going to gather you to myself. And where I am, there you're going to be. And that's going to come at a critical time for the nation of Israel and a critical time for every Christ-rejecting person on this earth because they will have been given the opportunity to have known the truth, but they've rejected it. So I want you to praise God that you didn't reject the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. You need to praise Him for that. Let's get into our study. Let's first of all read Revelation 8, verses 1 through 6, because that's what we're going to be dealing with tonight. It says, When He opened the seventh seal, in other words, Jesus is the one who is opening the seals. When He opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. And then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. You know, if there's any passage of Scripture that best defines and explains the adage, the calm before the storm, you all have heard that, right? Well, it begins with one verse in our text. The very first verse of chapter 8. You know that phrase, the calm before the storm, it begins, well, I should say its meaning is, is sometimes attributed to atmospheric conditions, obviously meteorological things, as it were. But the phrase is often used in describing the conditions before the storms of life affect us as well. One minute the sun is shining, and the next minute the lightning is flashing, thunder is booming, and the winds and the waves go wild. The phone rings, and in seconds your life is changed, and you're in the midst of a storm. A routine doctor visit turns into a storm as you hear news that you weren't expecting. So we all understand what a calm before a storm is, not only from the standpoint of the weather, but most importantly, the standpoint of our lives. And sometimes, I, I, have, to, I have to share this, sometimes I feel that when there is a little bit of a calm, I'm kind of always wondering, What's coming? What's coming? We can oftentimes look at that as God is preparing us for something and we need to be ready for that. And I have to remind you that God is always preparing us for something. Everything is preparing us for something that's coming next. Don't you think? Everything. Every experience that you have, every person that you speak to sometimes from God's perspective, is just preparation 
for something else. But as we get into chapter 8, now the calm before the storm has been preceded by what Jesus calls the beginning of sorrows. And we need to be reminded that before the calm of the coming storm, there was a storm before the calm. And there is a storm before the calm here. If you go back to Matthew chapter 24, if you remember the words of Jesus when he said, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. And we've tied all of this into what we've seen in chapter 6 through 8 up to this point. Many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and will deceive many. The white horse, the rider of the white horse, the deceiver. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. The red horse. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. The black horse. And then, of course, the horse of death. The pale horse. And then Jesus says, all these are just the beginning, he says. All these are the beginning of sorrows. And then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. The tribulation saints, those under the altar, crying out to God, saying, Lord, when when are you going to avenge us? So there was a storm before the calm, before the next storm. And as we look at the things that are happening in this world today, we we see things spinning out of control. Man has hardened his heart towards God and is thus manifesting the fruit of that broken relationship. I can tell you this, all of these cultural and, and... and societal changes that are going on in our lives, when you look deep at the root of each and every one of them, you're going to see that they are all rooted in a belief that there really is no God with standards or has given us any standards to follow or to stand upon. God has made it clear what sin is and that certain things are indeed an abomination to the Lord. That's never changed because His his Word's never changed. But we don't like what His Word says, therefore we change things. And we seek to change law so that we can feel better. But when you think about it, it's all rooted in saying there is no God. And it takes us back to Genesis chapter 3 where the serpent says to Eve, Did God really say that? Did He really say that? He... He didn't really say that, which is a nice way of saying God's a liar. Well, folks, God isn't a liar. And we have His truth to let us know that He's not a liar. And that His Word never changes, and that His character and His whole being never changes. So man has hardened his heart toward God and and is thus manifesting the fruit of that broken relationship. Paul tells Timothy of the stressful times that will come upon men in the last days because of their rebellion 
against God. Second Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. But know this, he says. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you don't underline the first three words, it won't keep you studying what is in the scriptures that compares to what we're seeing in the word today, in the world today. But know this, you need to know this. That in the last days, perilous times will come. I think week in and week out, we see from the scriptures and, and it is proven that we are living indeed in the last days. There's no doubt about that to me. I, I hope that there's no doubt about that to you. But in the last days, perilous times will come. These are dangerous times. We can maybe look at it from a mundane perspective and say, well, yeah, you know, 40 years ago, in summers like the ones we're having today, I used to live on a, a block where we had, we had screen doors and, and we never locked the screen door. We just left them open at night and, you know, nobody ever came in and broke in. Oh, if they tried, they, they weren't going to be very successful. But it was very rare. You trusted your neighbors. You helped your neighbors. You knew your neighbors. Now we're living in perilous times. More perilous than ever before. We not only lock our doors, we got computers on our doors, we got security systems on the top of security systems, we got security systems for our computers, we got security systems for the security systems of our computers and you know we just go on and on because nothing's safe anymore but here's the reason for men will be lovers of themselves lovers of money boasters proud blasphemers oh just turn on the tv any channel will do and god is blasphemed Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. Up to this point, we've already gone through the second page of the El Paso Times. Traitors. How about that guy giving secrets away? Right in gallivanting. And we are so weak as a nation. That we have nations telling us to our face, hey, we're not going to do nothing about it. It was not like that years ago. When the United States of America said something, people jumped. I'll calm down here in a minute. Headstrong, haughty, in other words, you ever seen that? Arrogance. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Sometimes we see that in the church more than we see it in the world. People loving pleasure, wanting to be pleased rather than doing all they can to please God with simple worship, with simple praise, with simple humility, with simple dying to self. That's not in the way it is anymore. We don't like it here. It's too hot, too cold, too, too
to, you know, you don't, guys don't sing well, you don't do this, you don't do that well, you don't play well, you don't do, you don't, you don't provide this, you don't provide that. Whatever happened to just loving God? So you have a form of godliness, but deny its power. From such people turn away. These statements not only sum up the attitudes and actions of this nation, but the men and women and children throughout the world, the global community, as it were. We see people lacking self-control all the time. We see this practically every day in our daily news. The senseless murders of young people for sports shoes. Young kids getting killed for sports shoes. On an expressway in Chicago several years ago, a man cut off another man, which caused one of them to pull out a gun and shoot at the vehicle. And the victim of this gunshot was not the driver, but an innocent child sitting in the back seat of a van. The child recovered from her injuries, but is now blind in one eye. No self-control. People are in love with themselves and in love with pleasure at any cost. A few years ago, on the last day of school in Florida, a 13-year-old student was sent home from school for throwing water balloons on the last day of classes, and and, and that person returned the next day and fatally shot a teacher with a semi-automatic pistol. We are seeing a disrespect and a disobedience not only toward parents, but to those who are in authority. And yes, we are living in stressful times which will only grow more and more intense as we move closer and closer to the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we may wonder why God has not judged this evil world sooner. How how long can He wait? I mean, just, just look at all this evil that is running rampant in this world today. God's long-suffering is great and He is waiting for the fullness of our iniquities to run its course. In other words, before he finally judges, there's going to be one last sin. And God knows when it is. For man's rebellion against him will be complete. Remember what the Lord said to Abraham in Genesis 15, verse 16, about the, uh, the, about the Amorites. He, he said this, But in the fourth generation they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. <laughs> you know, if you read on, and then you read in the, you know, historically biblical, the biblical history, God is just as merciful, and, and He gives the Amorites 400 years to repent, and they did not. He gave them 400 years to repent. And so the time had come for God's patience to be replaced with His judgment against His people. The same is true today. God is patient and long-suffering, but we shall soon see His righteous judgment being poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. The world can't go on and say, Oh, listen, God is, is just not a just God, and He's not a righteous God. He's not, he's not a loving God if He does all of those things. No, He's being righteous and just and, 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 and merciful and gracious right now. And you're taking advantage of it, but you won't receive him no matter what he does. So one day, the proverbial rug will be pulled out from from under your feet. But it isn't 
as if you weren't warned. Romans 2, verses 5 and 6. Paul said, but in accordance... But in accordance with your hardness, he said... He's speaking to unbelievers here for just a moment. Professing believers, but he says, listen. He's being very hard here at the beginning of the book of Romans. He says, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. He is going to judge every one. The book of, in the books of, in the books written to the church in Corinth. It refers actually to the very fact that we'll all be judged. Believers will be judged at the, at the, at the Bema seat of Christ. The unbeliever will be judged at the great white throne judgment of God. But in any event, judgment is coming. We saw God's judgment begin as the Lamb took the scroll or the title deed of the earth and began to open or loose its seals, if you remember back in chapter 6. With the opening of each seal came judgment from God upon the earth dwellers. We saw false peace and security, followed by wars, famine, diseases, death, and cataclysmic events in the heavens and upon earth. Has it happened yet? No, it hasn't happened, has it? But we have been given that prophetically. We've been given that so that we can see that it's going to happen And it is spoken of as if it's already happened. It has been seen by John. John records it and he says, this is going to happen because God has shown it to me. To show it to you. The judgment has begun, in other words. And after the parenthesis of chapter 7, when God sealed the 144,000 Jewish evangelists, and out of that we saw an innumerable number of people come to the Lord, we now pick up with the seventh seal, which may take place sometime after the midpoint of the tribulation period. So let's go back to verse 1. Now we're going to start very quickly the study of these verses in Revelation, um, uh, Revelation chapter 8. When he opened the seventh seal, it says, there was silence in heaven for about... A half hour. As the seventh seal was opened, silence in heaven breaks out for about half an hour. Now, for some of us, that's not a big deal, is it? There's times when we just want to sit and rest. We don't want to say a thing. We've already talked all day long, and we just want to sit there and not say a thing. You can, you can sit there for half an hour. But depending upon the perspective that you're in and depending upon the kind of things that you do, being silent for about half an hour could be an eternity. If you run a radio station, you can't have dead air. Because then people won't know that you're on. They'll think that you're not there and they'll go on to somebody else. You've got to keep having some kind of sound in your radio. Anything. Three seconds of dead air is a long time on the radio. 
Ten seconds on the air is a long time. But a half an hour is an eternity, you see. But why is this significant? Because I I want you to keep in mind that heaven, before this moment, heaven was breaking out and busting forth in the worship of God. But now there is an eerie silence. And, and And I want to say something very quickly here about Something that's going on in the church today, in the emerging church movement, and what's called uh, contemplative spirituality, uh, it's, it's, it's being found in certain books. You've got to be very careful when you go to the bookstores now, this Christian bookstores, and, and begin to read about things about meditation and, 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 and contemplative spirituality. And, and there's this thing going around in some churches today where, where they, they, they want to go into this, this uh, silence, this time of silence before God. But in that time, there's a breathing technique. Folks, this is New Age stuff. This is not the Bible. This is not the Word of God. Be careful. Listen, pay attention. Don't just read something because it says God on it. You have to ask the question, which God are they talking about? We believe in the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham Isaac, and Jacob, through which came the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Who is our God? We need to be careful. But silence is important in our lives. But not if we're being told how to do it and how to breathe and, you know, what to listen for and lighting candles and doing all kinds of weird stuff. But here's this your eerie silence now in heaven. They've been worshiping and worshiping and worshiping and now all of a sudden they're silent. And that kind of a calm before the storm of God's judgment continues to be poured out. But why this silence? Well, I want you to consider first of all, that when we see mentions of silence in the Scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, it is having to do with the issue of judgment. Think about Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 7 says, Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand. What is the day of the Lord? That's the time of tribulation. Be silent in the presence of the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is at hand, for the Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has invited His guests. I'm not sure that some of us want to be that guest. Be silent. There's a silence in in awe of the holocaust of divine fury that is going to be poured out. What can be said of a time of judgment that's going to be greater than any other kind of judgment that's ever happened on this earth? And the more we get into the book of Revelation, the more we're going to find that the numbers are going to be greater than any kind of holocaust that we've seen happen in the past. Zechariah chapter 2 verse 13 says, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for He has aroused from his holy habitation. <laughs> wow. It's as if you just are waiting to see what he's going to do. 
As the seal is open, the Lord is preparing to step out onto the scene to set up His kingdom, and the heavens wait in eager anticipation for this event. It is like the unveiling of a work of art. As the covering is about to be lifted, silence fills the crowd of people, and that, in a sense, is what we are seeing here in heaven. And you will see that this silence is in direct response. Listen, it is in direct response to the prayers that come before the throne of God as He is about to act upon those requests. And we'll see that in verses 3 and 4 in just a moment. Before we get to verse 3, we've got to get to verse 2. So let's go to verse 2. It says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. The seven trumpets that are about to sound most likely will be blown towards the end of the tribulation period, sometime after the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. I talked earlier about the fact that we look at this, uh, we have to look at it from various perspectives, because there there are some things in the book of Revelation that are not chronological and others that are, and yet there's a mix here of that, and I, and I tried to clarify that back in chapter 6 and 7. But uh, more than likely, these, these will be blown for the second half of the tribulation period. And as we get to these trumpet judgments, we will see the first four deal with judgments that are focused upon the earth. And the last three judgments are focused upon man. That's another thing that we need to kind of consider here today. Uh, very quickly, and we'll consider it more when we see it in, in, in the book of Revelation as we go to those places. But, you know, today there's this, this move by, by secular humanism that says we need to take care of our planet. We, we need to be, you know, ecological and uh, environmentally conscious and aware and doing all kinds of things like that. And, and a lot of people don't realize that many years ago there was a, a, a group of churches that got together. Uh, eventually it would become the World Council of Churches. They had a different name before that, but, but eventually it became the, 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 the uh, Federation, it was a Federation of, of uh, Council of Churches or whatever. Anyway, it became the World Council of Churches, which is a tremendously liberal organization where most of the people, you know, have various views of, 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 uh, of Christ and, uh, and, and don't believe a lot of what the Word of God says. So what they were saying was, well, we need to kind of bridge the gap with other religions so that we can kind of, you know, help the earth and help the world out. And this was happening back in the 40s, you see. We, we thought it maybe started in the 60s. It started way back. This liberalism that, that's, that's trying to uh, overrun the church today. And, and, and so one of the things that uh, you see happening in the world is, is this drive toward, you know, having, you know, okay, we're, we're going to be Christian, but we're also going to take care of the earth. And we're going to take care of people, and we're going to take care of the earth. And so we're going to, you know, listen, churches have to take care of people, right? We do, we do it ourselves here. But that's not the most important thing we do. Because the most important thing that we need to do is point people to Jesus Christ. And we need to do that by believing and trusting and teaching and preaching the Word of God. And knowing that it's truth. And letting them know that it's truth and that they need to come to salvation through Jesus Christ. That's the most important thing. Not saving the planet. Because as I read the Scriptures, the planet is not going to be saved. Read Second Peter chapter 3. The heavens and the earth will be destroyed. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth 
where righteousness dwells, there will be a new Jerusalem where righteousness dwells, a new heavens, a new earth. But, but, but listen, what are we trying to save? God called us to save souls. He'll do the saving, but He's called us to do what we've been called to do in the Scriptures. All right, so can you imagine when, when God, in, the, in these judgments that are going to be poured out on the earth, a lot of it is, is just, it just has that, that, that sense that God is saying, oh, so you're going to save the earth? Look at what I can do to it. Look at what I can do to it. I created it. I made it, and when I made it, it was good. All right, so I get excited. I'm, I'm sorry. Just get, well, We're almost there. We're going to get there pretty soon. All right. Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, in other words, we see trumpets that are used to call an assembly together, as in Numbers chapter 10. And there's a few things that we'll see in Numbers chapter 10. But here in verse 2, it tells us, Make two silver trumpets for yourself. You shall make them of hammered work. You shall use them for calling the congregation and for directing the movement of the camp. So you'll notice there that uh, they are used uh, to call an assembly together. And then in verse uh, 9, trumpets are used to sound the alarm for war. So in Numbers chapter 10, we see another uh, way of seeing the, the trumpets being used. When you go to war in your land against the enemy who oppresses you, then you shall sound an alarm with the trumpets and you will be remembered before the Lord your God, and you will be saved from your enemies. Now, they were also used for their appointed feasts as well. Verse 10, the next verse. Also in the day of your gladness in your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, <clears throat> and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. So trumpets were... Um, uh, to be used in, in the uh, appointing of the feast and the preparation of the feast and letting the people know that the feasts were about to begin. And the festivals of the Lord it, uh, for the Jewish people at that time were, were uh, you know, they, they, they were quite important for them to participate in. So they had to call the people through uh, the usage of trumpets. Now, other uses of trumpets in Scripture to announce news for Samuel uh, chapter 13, verse 3. The news was that uh, uh, Jonathan had defeated uh, some of the Philistines, and so they used trumpets for that. Uh, they used trumpets to announce a new king when uh, uh, Solomon was declared king. Uh, they were used, trumpets were used in worship, First Chronicles 16, verses 6 and 42. And uh, then trumpets were also used to announce the day of the Lord, of course. We've seen that ourselves in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 14 through 16. But in the New Testament, we see two primary uses for trumpets. The first is to call the church home, which we know to be the rapture of the church. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I, I love the fact that, I have to, I have to say, mention this, but, but years ago, uh, there, there was a, a, a little church that had, had this this uh, sign or this particular verse of scripture over their nursery we shall all be changed okay but I, I just thought I thought that was cute alright did I wake any of you up I hope I did alright uh, there was a church also by the way they used to meet in a, in a funeral home and, the, and their scripture was uh, and the dead in Christ shall rise first but uh, you know it's a, uh, 
enough church jokes. Okay. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. We also know that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 60 through uh, 18, it says, For the Lord himself, speaking of the rapture again, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And you know you can't leave those two verses without this verse. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. But the other trumpet blast that we find in the New Testament is seen in judgment in this book that we're studying. And we see it in this chapter, verses 6 and 7. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and uh, they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. That's where we're going to start next time, but by the way, that lets you know, you know, that all this stuff to try to, you know, we should, we should be good stewards of all that God has given us, but when the earth is more important than souls, there's something wrong, and God says, hey, I just want you to see what I can do. All right. Let's go to verse 3 now of our text. The judgments continue on with each blast of the trumpet, as we'll see. There are seven trumpets to be blown. And those that sound these alarms will be seven angels or ministering spirits which are sent out by God to announce His judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world. So in verse 3 it says, Then another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense. Now, I I really want you to pay attention to the images that were being given here in the scriptures here, the pictures. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. The altar of incense stood before the holy place in the temple. We all should be familiar with that. It stood in front of the veil between the table of showbread and the seven-branch oil-burning lamp, or the seven-branch lampstand, which is the menorah. But that menorah is just a little one because the menorah in the temple was about this tall from the floor up this way. Pretty, pretty good size. And, and the incense was burned and offered to God before the first and after the last sacrifices of the day. So before the first sacrifice and before the last sacrifice, or I should say after the last sacrifice of the day. Now to burn this incense, <clears throat> the, to burn this incense, the priest was to take the hot, fiery coals from the brazen altar the place where the sacrifices were offered, and bring them to the holy place, to the altar of incense. That was what they were to do. They were to go to the brazen altar and bring them into the holy place 
to the altar of incense. Now, in Psalm 141, verse 2, listen to this verse. It says, Let my prayer be set before you as incense, the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Did you remember back in Revelation 8 that the angel had the incense coming up from his hand? But this picture here, let my prayer be set before you as incense. The lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. They lifted unto the Lord. It was, the idea was to, to lift up our prayers as incense unto God. And the use of incense. Notwithstanding the fact that some of us remember incense when we were in the 60s and 70s, you know, hippies and burning incense when we were meditating. All right. But the incense of the temple was a beautiful aroma. It was designed by God. It was God's formula to be burned His way. You remember the sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu? They were consumed because they burned strange fire unto God. It wasn't God's formula that they burned. It was done with their own heart and not with a heart toward God in obedience. But so we see the offering then of incense related to our prayers ascending to the throne of God. By the way, mark that in your Bible, Psalm 141, verse 2. Let let that be a a prayer for you. Lord, I I just want to lift up my prayers to you as incense and and my hands to you as, as the evening sacrifice. Oftentimes told you, you know, it's okay to lift your hands up to the Lord when you worship Him here. It's okay. And here's the reason why. Because sometimes we say, what are they doing? Why are they lifting their hands? Because, number one, we're lifting up our prayers as a sacrifice unto the Lord. But also because, what does this mean? And I don't mean touchdown. If we lift our hands to the Lord, what does it mean? I surrender. I surrender to you. What a beautiful thought that is. Never be ashamed or afraid to lift your hands up to God. When you're praying, when you're worshiping, when you're praising Him, don't be afraid. So we see the offering of incense related to our prayers ascending to the throne of God. Keep in mind that the tabernacle and the temple were pictures or types of heaven. Remember that. Each portion of them Each portion of everything done in the temple or the tabernacle, each portion of them speaks of an aspect of the work of Jesus for all mankind. The showbread represented Jesus as the bread of life. The seven-branch burning lamp is a picture of Jesus being the light of the world. And you can go on and on and see different pictures of Christ in the tabernacle and in the temple. It's all pointing to Jesus. Everything, the sacrifices, the offerings... Everything points to Jesus. 
You know, it is as it says in Hebrews 9 verse 24. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true. See, the tabernacle and the temple were copies of the true. He hasn't entered the holy places which are made by hands, uh, which, uh, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Where did he go after he ascended into heaven? Well, that was a loaded question, right? I mean, I, I gave you the answer. I should have asked, where did he go after he, was, uh, after he resurrected from the dead? He ascended into heaven. And there was purpose to appear in the presence of God on our behalf for us. Aren't you glad? Praise the Lord. And so think about this picture of prayer that God is painting for us here in Revelation chapter 8. Our prayers are like incense, sweet smelling, pleasing to God. And in a sense, they smell good to God. At least they should. When we pray, it is like the Lord taking a deep breath in. Ah. You ever just walked out in a beautiful field of flowers and just stop for just a moment and, and you know, in the air, does, the, the scent of these flowers just lingered you. Ah. Boy, that smells good. And then you start sneezing, okay. But, but, but you get the idea, right? The Lord doesn't sneeze. But our incense goes up to Him. Our prayers, goes, our prayers go up to Him. And, and He just takes it, as if He just takes it in. And, 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 and He appreciates, listen, He is appreciating the aroma of faith and trust and confidence in Him, in His power and might to care for our needs and our burdens. But I want you to notice something that is very important, a picture where the type and the reality come together. The altar of sacrifice. The altar of sacrifice was located outside of the holy place. So if you've done studies of the tabernacle or temple, the brazen altar was outside of the holy place. Not inside, but outside. So when the priest had to go get the hot coals, he had to go out of the holy place, outside, take the coals in to the holy place. You see this picture? Thus the coals from this altar must first be appropriated by the priest and then taken to the altar of incense where, the, where they ignite the incense as a sweet-smelling aroma before God. Now, for us, our Lord was crucified where? Outside of the city. And He must be appropriated into our lives. So where do we go for our salvation? We go to Calvary. We go to Calvary because that's where He died for us. That's where the greatest sacrifice for the greatest need was made. At Calvary. 
And we come to the cross. And we come to salvation. And then we appropriate Jesus. You're saved not by works, but by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. In other words, He must become your Lord and your Savior before our prayers can be ignited and ascended unto God. The one prayer He hears before He changes us is, Lord, I'm a sinner. I now come to You. And I acknowledge what I've done in my life as sin. And I am completely in need of Your mercy. But I realize that you died on the cross for me. And you shed your blood for my forgiveness. So Lord, I confess you with my mouth and I believe that you are risen from the dead. Save me. Have mercy on me. Change me. And he does it. And he says, okay. Come to the holy place. And we place our coals and our incense together. And our prayers are now heard. It is then that they are accepted and acted upon. Otherwise, God is not under any obligation to act upon the prayers of those that are not His children. Don't be suckered into this thing where people say, well, you know, we all pray. It doesn't matter. We, 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 we pray to whatever God we want to believe in. You know? And He gives me peace when I pray. Who's He? Because there's only one true peace. Just like there is only one true salvation. And that's in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus said so. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, eventually people are going to realize they haven't come to the altar. They haven't come to Him. Do you remember what Jesus said in John 14, verses 12 through 14? That's the wrong direction. Here we go. Most assuredly I say to you, He who believes in Me, the works that I do will do also. The works that I do, He will do also. And greater works than these He will do because I go to My Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that, my, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Well, that's not for everybody, is it? He was speaking to his own, to his disciples. In Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16, it says, Seeing then that we have a a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. That is to say that all the other priests that have ever served in the tabernacle or temple or churches, wherever, none of them can be effective like the one true great high priest.
who alone can sympathize with our weaknesses. And here is why. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have come with the coals to the altar and the incense we place and the aroma of our prayers can be lifted up to God. We can come boldly before God because of what Jesus Christ has done in our lives. He has cleansed us from our sins. He has reconciled us to the Father. And therefore, we can speak to God. We can pour out our hearts to Him. And He will listen to our cries because we have been adopted into His family. And we are His children. Don't forget that. Even if you're a prodigal. Even if you've walked away, he's still your father. And he's waiting for you to turn back to him. And he's waiting for you to run back to him. And and he's going to run toward you. And he's going to fall upon you. And he's going to beat you up. And he said, where you been? Is that what he's going to do? He'll slap you a few times. He'll slap you silly. Slap some sense into you. No. The father of the prodigal ran to his son, fell upon him, hugged him and kissed him, welcomed him back, gave him the ring of his family, replaced his ugly clothes and shoes, put a robe upon him. This is my son. This is my child. This is who you are if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Don't listen to the enemy. You've sinned too much. How can God forgive you again and again? Because God says, I will. I will forgive you if you come back to me. But here in our text, we're told that the angel brings these prayers before God. Why has God placed these prayers apparently on the side? Why has He not acted upon these prayers? Why, we've seen the tribulation saints under the altar crying out to God, When, Lord, when? You know, it does seem strange and out of character for God, but, but you know, He hasn't forgotten. And He hasn't placed them on the sidelines. He has just not acted upon these prayers as yet. But I can tell you this, He's about to act upon them. Look at verses 5 and 6, and we'll close with this. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. <laughs> Look at that picture. The angel took the censer, which is, which is the, the, the bowl that he carries, the, you know, the, 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 the fire, the, the coals. He, he filled it with fire from the altar and he threw it to the earth. And there were noises and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And with time, we'll, we'll, we'll start kind of here next time just to kind of give you a, a picture of this uh, before we go on into the rest of the chapter. But then in verse 6 it says, So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared them now to sound. Immediately after the prayers ascend, listen to this, please. 
immediately after the prayers ascend, the judgment descends. The altar from which the angel filled the censer with fire represented the place of judgment. The fire represented the judgment of God upon sin as seen in the Levitical offerings. As the altar was the expression of His holiness and righteousness in dealing with the sins of the people of old, so that same holiness and righteousness will search the earth and judge and punish accordingly. Isn't that interesting? As the prayers have ascended to God, the judgments descend. God will vindicate. God will show His vengeance against those who killed His people or who will kill His people. For the sake of Christ. But I want to leave you with hope tonight. There is still hope. There is still hope. Because I believe that in this room, even though it's a Wednesday night, there may be someone here that has never prayed to receive Jesus Christ. Never prayed to receive Christ as Lord and Savior never truly trusted Him, never said to Him, I'm a sinner, I, I, and acknowledged that. But there's still hope. And while we're here today, there's still time. My encouragement to you is this. Come to the One who died on the cross for you and who rose again from the dead so that He might return for you. He died on the cross for you. And He rose again so that He can return for you. That's how much He loves you. That's how much He wants you to avoid this coming judgment. So if you haven't done it, now's the time. Give your life to Jesus Christ. Shall we pray?